got the glorious, uh, hey, it's your time. Get up there from Pastor Brian. So a few words on uh, introduction. Uh, I see in your bulletin you have the notes for the sermon, and you have uh, who the pastor is. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 17 to 44. Pastor Nathan, new regime, C-U-R-R-E-Y. Well, it's good that he got the C-U-R-R-E-Y right because on your website, like all week, it said C-U-R-R-Y. And how long did we work together, Brian? Five years or so? So he used some lame excuse about other curries being in here and just not as robust a curry as, as I am, I guess, because I also get the new regime title. So Pastor Tony Felice, he's a senior pastor at uh, Redeemer. Uh, Tony and I grew up together, and uh, we have the opportunity to work together for the last 15 years. He took a sabbatical this summer, but prior to that, it was seven summers ago that he took his first sabbatical, and I was then left in charge of Brian. Now, that was a pretty high calling right there. I was not up for the task, but Brian printed up these new logos, as he's prone to do, having new logos and new uh, cute things that he puts around the office, and it said, new regime. Now that Tony's gone, we have a new regime. He rejoiced for like two days, maybe one and a half days, and then it was like, oh no, Nathan. We won't get into the details of how that worked out, but he still took five years to ask me to come out here, so maybe that's a, four years, an indication. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is probably a familiar passage to many of us, and I think it's important for us to understand what's going on in the book of John. Uh, there have been many episodes where Jesus is confronting those around him who doubted who he was, didn't know who he was. In fact, I think in our culture today, there are many people that have tons of misconceptions, misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And for us to understand who Jesus is, there's many ways to come about it, but I think one of the best ways to do that is let's ask Jesus who he says that he is. And throughout the book of John, there are statement after statement that we read where Jesus says, I am. And he uses some description that we can relate to to make this connection. Oh, Jesus is this. And in John chapter 11, we have an I am that I think blows us away when we really consider the depths of it, when we really consider the implications of what Jesus says when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, there was death going on. John chapter 11 starts off with the sickness and death of a good friend, Lazarus. Now, sickness and death, they never come at good times, do they? I wish that I could schedule that and put it at a time of the year that I'm not too busy or funerals and death when I don't have to travel elsewhere. We want to have things to go according to our agenda, our schedule, our timeline. And the disciples were confused because this death, this death of Lazarus, Mary and Martha were confused because this death, this death of Lazarus, in their mind, should never have happened. Jesus didn't come at the right time. Jesus should have come, and this never would have happened. But this death and the illness that preceded it came at just the exact time, right according to God's timetable and right according to God's purpose so that Jesus could display something about himself that transforms his disciples and our lives when we come to understand it. Follow along as I read, uh, beginning of verse 1 of John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary 
and Martha, her, her sister. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he who, whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, they said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the record of your life and of your ministry, of both your words and your actions, your miracles, Lord. We thank you for the testimony of your word that it is true, that it is sure. And Lord Jesus, we know that you prayed that we would be sanctified by this word, this truth, because your word is truth. Lord, open our eyes, give us sight to see not just what the text says before us, but what does it mean for our lives? And not just what it means, but how to live it, the power to live it. Lord, we thank you for this power that works in us so powerfully. By your grace, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over this summer, um, we had been without Pastor Tony for a time, and uh, Aaron Suber, who some of you may have met at Presbytery, that was here in August, he and I divided up the I am statements from John. And we walked through looking at each of these statements and how they just enhanced our view and our understanding of Jesus. And think of them with me. The I am statements, they give particular emphasis to different aspects of Jesus' character. When Jesus says, I am the bread, it shows his provision, his care. When Jesus says, I am the light, it shows vision of direction. When he says, I am who I am, it shows his eternality, his eternal existence. When Jesus says, I am the door, it shows he's exclusively the way to heaven, to the Father, the only way for salvation. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he illustrates his intimate and personal relationship with us, his sheep. And today, when we look at, I am the resurrection in the life, I think that we see in unparalleled fashion the power of Jesus. We have a powerful Savior. We have a powerful God in Christ Jesus. It's unmatched by any other power. But we live in day-to-day -day earthly existence under the shadow of another power that seems invincible, and that's death. 
Death is that power that none of us can escape, right? Death and task taxes. No one can get around those two. But we do everything within our power to fight death, right? We try and fight it with exercise and diet. We try to uh, find different anti-aging products and regiments, and we starve ourselves, we sweat ourselves in order to try and push off death for a little longer. We have spent fortunes, some of us, on different products and procedures to try and beat death, but ultimately, we're all going to lose. We're all going to succumb to death. But then, then there's Jesus. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, who is the resurrection, the only one to defeat death, to die, be buried, and rise again. I want us to consider this from John chapter 11 and starting with this promise of resurrection. Skip down to verse 21 because Jesus comes to this place where there's a lot of grieving, a lot of sorrow. Lazarus has died. He's in the tomb already. And Jesus speaks to Martha, Lazarus's sister. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Listen to that faith. Listen to that confidence, that security that she has. But what is that security in? What is that confidence in? Jesus' words to her in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's awesome theology, Martha. You know your Old Testament. You know in the book of Job that Job says in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There is the, the kind of the shadow understanding of this New Testament reality that resurrection, having a new body given to us after we die, is the reality for those who are believers in Christ. When Jesus had to answer a lot of questions from Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sadducees were a group of teachers who were very against the supernatural, really against, they were very materialistic, and they thought that, well, this idea of resurrection, no way, it's impossible. So in Jesus' interactions with them, say in Matthew 22, we read that the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And they go on to try and trip Jesus up and to trick him, to talk about how many wives will somebody have in the resurrection if they... And so Jesus is very pointed with them and discusses with them that, no, he is the resurrection, and God is a God of resurrection. Because later in Matthew 22, they're questioning in the resurrection, how many wives will someone have? In verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they will neither marry and are, nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Another Old Testament study, study here, this time from Exodus 3, verse 6, Jesus quotes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You see, at this point when Moses is saying that God, 
Yahweh is the, is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is, at that current time, they had been in the grave. They were dead, but he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive. Their souls went on, but they were awaiting what Jesus was to promise, that he would raise them up in the last day. There's a lot that can be said about what the Bible teaches. What happens when we die? What happens to our souls? What happens to our bodies? In our Westminster Confession of Faith, it really helps us to really condense what all of the scriptures teach about this important subject. In chapter 32, here's what our confession so beautifully puts. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in the light of glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments under utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places for souls separated from their bodies, Scripture knows none other. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo where you're kind of in this soul sleep waiting for what the next thing is going to happen to you. Next it says, At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. You see, we're getting back to what God created originally in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve souls and bodies knit together in this beautiful nexus that was intended to be. But the day that they sinned against God, their, soul, their, their bodies began to die and decay. Their souls would go on forever. But something, something radical had to cha change. And what happened was Jesus came. Jesus came to redeem them and their bodies so that they could have resurrected bodies. You know, I've seen the peace that comes over people when they're facing death, when they're facing a serious operation. And there's something different about the follower of Christ than someone who doesn't. It just floods over them. The kind of peace that is certain, they're not certain necessarily whether they're going to survive this procedure or not. But they're certain that God is there, God is with them, and he will take them to be with himself for all eternity if that's his will. I mean, you have uncertainty in your future. There's things that you're not 100% sure about. There's things that probably weigh you down, things that you're concerned about, that you fear. There's things that, boy, you're just, will stay up at night thinking about. But I want to argue maybe from the greater to the lesser that if Jesus has given us the promise of defeating death and the resurrection of our bodies, don't you think that he can handle your financial problem right now? The problem in your marriage, the problem with your children, these other problems which in the grand scheme of things don't really measure up to that great and terrible enemy death that Jesus has already conquered. We can trust his promise. We can trust his promise as sure. You know, a promise is a, is a future hope that depends on the trustworthiness and the ability of the one who promises. 
Is Jesus trustworthy? Is he powerful? Can you depend on him? We need God's grace to really embrace that promise and have it transform the way that we live our lives here and now. I want us to consider that this promise of the resurrection is a doctrine that we hold to, that we, that we hope in, but it's not just a bare doctrine to be believed. It's a person to know. Jesus, in verse 25, says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is not just a doctrine to be believed. This is a person for us to know. This promise is rooted in the person of who Jesus is. Because if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then we got no hope for the future. But because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we're trusting in a person. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees this vision, and he saw, at, he saw, when he saw before him, he fell at his feet as though he was dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John saw the resurrected Jesus who put his hand on him and says, don't worry, I got the keys. I've defeated death. I've defeated hell. And I am here conquering. At the end of Revelation in chapter 21, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And there he sees the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and he will be his, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John is touched by Jesus and said, Don't worry. John then sees that this same Jesus is the one who wipes away every tear, the one who takes care of eternal problems and makes us to be in his presence, to be where he is. That's the promise that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room when they were afraid, when they didn't know what the next thing was happening, and Jesus was heading to the cross. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be there also. And those disciples took some confidence in that, but then he died. But then he rose again. And then John reports, I saw Jesus. I saw him in this vision, and there he is in heaven. And he is in a place where all of our tears will be wiped away. Do you look forward to that day? Meeting Jesus? Seeing the resurrected Jesus in your resurrection bodies? You know, the personal touch of Jesus, it should never be a sterile or cold doctrine. We as Presbyterians, maybe we get a, a bad rap for being overly intellectual and theological on matters, but if your theology isn't deep, if your theology then doesn't transfer into the way that you live and you think, it hasn't hit home yet. It's just hit up here and it hasn't 
hit down here. You see, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about a person. When we invite people to come to church, we're not just asking them to come to a place where there are other people. When we have them come and hear sermons or teaching, we, we don't want them just to fill their heads with good doctrine. When they come to our church and they hear about Jesus and they hear good doctrine, we're not actually inviting them to simply espouse a series of doctrinal beliefs and say, yes, I will do that. We want them to come to meet Jesus. We want them to meet Jesus who lives in us. Jesus who lives and reigns. Jesus who is real. So if Jesus is real in your life, that's what people want to see. That's what attracts people to understand and believe the good news. And for themselves to believe in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. We don't need another worldview or a particular ethical system to live by. We need a person. We need Jesus. And I want you to be bold. I want you to go out on a limb and talk about Jesus as if he's alive, as if he's real. He's not just a thought or an idea or a doctrine. He's real, real to you. Cultivate that relationship. Cultivate that personal relationship with the person, Jesus, who's the resurrection and the life. Maybe someone today just came in and they don't know Jesus. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've even studied some books about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. Talk to Brian or Travis or one of the elders and ask them. Get John off for coffee and ask him, tell me more about Jesus. Who is he to you? That's where life comes. I want us to understand, too, from this passage that life has resurrection power. The life right now. See, this doctrine of the resurrection, this person who is the resurrection, it's not just for when we die. It's for the here and now. The doctrine of the resurrection, the truth of Jesus as the resurrection, should transform and change the way we live now. Because the life of holiness, the life of piety that God calls us to, that's hard stuff. It's impossible. It's impossible without Christ, who is the resurrection, giving us his power. You know that life that looks more and more like Jesus, that everybody talks about but I don't seem to have? Where do I find the strength to live that way? Where does that power come from? It comes from Jesus, who's the resurrection and the life. I want you to consider a few passages from the New Testament. Philippians 3, 10 through 11 says this. We're relating the resurrection to the power for living today. That's what Paul did. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants it. I want it. Do you want to know the power of his resurrection in your life here and now? In Romans 6, 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, our new life, our living day by day, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, living a life that looks more like Jesus, the power for that comes because of Christ's resurrection. Without the resurrection of Christ, we don't have that power. Later in Romans 8, verse 11, 
Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Do you want to put to death the deeds of the body? Do you want to crucify those sins that keep besetting you, that keep weighing you down? Look to Jesus. It's his power, the power of the resurrection. Listen to that power in Ephesians 1, where Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope that which he, to which he has called you, that the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection of Jesus and the great power that was unleashed there to conquer death is unleashed in your life so that you can conquer your flesh, so you can conquer the sin in your life. Finally, Paul says in Colossians 3, since You've been raised with Christ since you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things in the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is who, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. Yes, you will appear with him in glory, with resurrected bodies, enjoying his presence, with your tears and your sadness wiped away. But here and now, you have power to fight sin in your life. You have power to overcome the darkness that just seems overwhelming, that seems to come over us. This power will change you. About 10 years ago now, I was meeting with a couple. We'll call them Bill and Kelly. And they were having struggles. They were having challenges in their marriage. They didn't see eye to eye on a number of principles. And as far as raising their daughter, they had different ideas and ways that they were going to go about that. As far as their finances, wow, she was a huge spender. He was always mad that she was spending. They were having struggles even in their talk about God and church and religion. And, and their views about the Bible didn't didn't really line up. So they had struggles. And, and they came to me and they were talking about those struggles. They were, seemed to be making progress and working through those. And both of them said they're Christians. Both of them said they believe in Jesus. Both of them said they want to base their life on the Word of God. Well, Brian had just come on staff, I think, within a month or so. And I get a phone call from Kelly. First thing in the morning, call from Kelly comes through. She's crying. She's sobbing. She says, I'm going to kill myself. I said, don't. Stop. I'm coming right over. I hung up the phone. I put my head in Brian's office. I said, Brian, come on with me. We're going somewhere. Okay. I'll tell you on the way. I hop in the car. They live just a few blocks from the church. When we arrived there, Brian had just finished praying. We didn't know where we were going to walk into. We knew she was struggling terribly. When we got there, the door was kind of pushed open. We had called the husband who had called the police, who were on their way, but we were the first ones to get there. 
the door was a little open. As I walked up and pushed the door open, I saw Kelly slumped on the steps with her head down and her hand was next to a gun. And as I walked up, I could see her body moving as she sobbed, as she cried. There's no blood splattered everywhere. I reach over and I grab the gun and I just, I just kind of hold it back and Brian grabs hold of it. He walks up and puts it up on the top of the refrigerator in the kitchen and we've begun this process then of talking, her, talking to her and saying, what? What's going on? Why, why are you? Well, she had taken a second mortgage on their house, which her husband knew about. And he thought that they were using that to kind of spend on some expenses that they had and some debt. And instead, she had spent it all away. Almost $20,000 worth of money gone. And she had to give an account for it. She was overwhelmed. She thought it's impossible. She thought life was impossible. She wanted to give up. There's a long road then of taking a drive to the hospital, being in the mental ward for a couple days, coming out, trying to work through the issues that were just so burdening her. You may think, well, what do I have in common with her? I mean, I'm not at that, that point yet. Maybe you're near that point. But what may be in common is what she thought was impossible had gotten her so depressed, so down. And there are things in your life that you may think, that's impossible. That'll never change. That's the way it is. There may be a broken relationship in your life right now that you say, it's impossible. It will never change. It's just the way it is. Maybe you feel so burdened by, by debt and finances, and you think, like Kelly, there's no way out, except the one way out. Parenting just seems to be like you'll never get through and never break through. It's impossible for my kids to ever get this. But what's true about the resurrection at its base level is Jesus does something that is impossible and shows that with him it is possible. What is that in your life? I'm not guaranteeing that God's going to turn everything around, but he has the power to do immeasurably beyond all that we ask or imagine. I hope that gives you a glimmer of hope. The resurrection power of Jesus gives us hope for today. I want us to conclude with this resurrection celebration that we see in verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor, for he's been there for four days. Now, some of you have grew up on the King James Version like I had. What does it say here? Behold, he stinketh. Ugh. He smells. There's an odor. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now let me pause here. As I was convicted by R.C. Sproul when he spoke on this passage, he says, I hear so many preachers who read this passage and say, 
he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he just wants to shake him and say, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He wakes the dead. He brings new life. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him, let him go. What a celebration. What a change. They were grieving, they were mourning. But then life comes. And life came for Lazarus. And resurrection came and will come again. For Lazarus died again. Now, I got to imagine that at my funeral service, that there will be people gathered around, will be remembering me, but what I want them to see, what I want to point to them every time, is that they can have hope in the resurrection. The title on my bulletin for the funeral is going to, be, is going to read, A Worship Service of Witness to the Resurrection. Our death and our hope in the resurrection will point others to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Did Mary and Martha and Lazarus walk away different because of this experience? Oh, I'm certain. I'm sure that they did. They were transformed by, God, by God's gracious power that was demonstrated through Jesus. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. I'll close with a story about Johnny Erickson Tata. You may be familiar with her. She was in a diving accident that left her a, a paraplegic in a wheelchair. And she just reached 50 years being in a wheelchair. And she said, last week, my husband, Ken, and I were at our Johnny and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big, noisy dining hall when a college-age volunteer approached me, holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd and asked, Miss Johnny, do you ever think how none of this would have been happening if it were not for your diving accident? I flashed a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000 foot view of the moment. She's right. How did I get here? It has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just the grace over the long haul, but grace in the tiny moments, like breathing in, breathing out, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning, you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. What you're left with is a peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. Will Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, be your power for life today and your hope for eternity? Let's pray.